So I'm here with Reverend Shane Stanford, and we're going to talk a little bit about change today. So Shane, my first question for you is, what do you think the scriptural definition of obedience is? Following Jesus where he leads. And I really do think that, you know, as he talks about in Luke, uh, in the sixth chapter, he says, if you want to be my disciple, and he's very specific to use the, the, the word be there, not if you want to act like a disciple or follow like a disciple, but be one, you have to deny yourself, get rid of all the things that keep you uh, self-centered and keep you from being able to put your full focus on me, take up a cross, which is really began a journey. That's what the cross, the Via Della Rosa and all of that meant. And then of course, follow, which, you know, a lot of us who are type A personalities, which I am certainly a type A personality, following is not, not, it's not easy. And so following requires a certain set of both discipline and obedience. And when I think about what obedience in Scripture is, it really is following where God's asked you to go. Because you're not going to—you're well, obedient to what? Principles, certain you know, ideas, but obedience to a one who loves you is a whole different, whole different ballgame. That idea of following is interesting because it's, that's not our culture in America. No, not at all. So what, what does following— a Jesus, as a Jesus follower look like beyond just denying yourself and taking up your cross? What do you think that looks like? Well, I think I think he, he defines it both in terms of relationships that are directly related to, and I, and I do think the disciplines give us a great understanding of this because Jesus practiced internal disciplines where you had situations where he was in prayer, he would go away himself to be with the Father. Uh, he spent a great deal of time building that relationship, and I think that's part of what it means to follow, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But loving your neighbor as yourself should be the natural overflow of all the effort you put into loving God, and therefore your relationship uh, with, with, with another person becomes the, the, the symbol, it becomes the identifier for how much this other relationship really means to you. I know people who spend all their time working on their spiritual relationship but have very, very poor relationships with their brothers and sisters, and, and, and that is not at all the way God um, practices that through the person of Jesus Christ. So when you talk about being a, a follower and you having to submit to your neighbors and doing things that are outside of your comfort zone, that often leads to change and having to alter the way you live. How do you think God envisions us to follow in those situations and to change when we're doing it for someone else? Well, you know, change in, in our human world, because we're all broken and imperfect and we don't know what's coming around the next corner or over the horizon, change has always been very difficult for most people. Um, because I've de felt dealt with a lot of difficulties in terms of my health, uh, change has never really been that big of an issue for me. And so there's pros and cons to that. The pro is is that I'm I'm ready for the next challenge. The con is is that it scares the dog out of everybody else. And so you have to be careful as a leader because I constantly am five, six steps in front of someone else, and, and that really will unnerve it. But, you know, we Wesleyans believe in something called provenience, which, you know, the, the idea of God going before us. We talk a lot about provenient grace, that God is working in ways in us, but I think provenient presence may be the better way to look at it because there's no change that can occur in your life, in any part of your life, that God is, is caught off guard with. And so being able to first trust that whatever's happening next, that God has that in God's hands, is a big, big deal. 
but it should also give us a sense of what it means for us to move forward in faith. They don't call it certainty. They call it faith. And faith and change have, have are our first cousins uh, because faith is always going to lead you into a place that you're, uh, you're not particularly um, thinking about or that you're, you're not particularly wanting to be held accountable and, and certainly not be comfortable with it. And so uh, change really is a marker for the church, I think, in many ways, to, to be able to gauge itself. It's a metric in some ways to be able to say, are we doing what God has called us to do? And I've always asked churches when I was doing consulting for when I worked for the foundation, uh, I would say, how do you deal with change? Tell me about your change meter. And that will tell me a lot about the health of your congregation. So why do you think people are so afraid of change? I think there's so much in the in our in our uh, mortal world that we are un, uh, un uh, we're unsettled by. Uh, I think people like to know that things are secure, and I think you know you know if you go through a lot of change in your life, I've dealt with this with uh, particularly adolescents who maybe have been homeless. We've I was with a ministry for many years that dealt with runaway teens, and one of the things that you would be shocked over would be how they would were looking for something that they could hold on to, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, that you could hand a stuffed animal to, and they would literally hold on to that all night because it was the one thing they knew that wasn't going anywhere, including themselves. And, you know, it's sort of like the story from World War II when all the children were crying. They were orphaned from from the war. They were in a convent. They could not get the the kids to be okay at night until finally one of the nuns gave each of them a loaf of bread. And they didn't eat the bread. They just simply woke up the next morning, and the kids were completely at peace, and they were holding that bread tight. I think it's about security. Uh, When my wife and I get into our most difficult moments, um, it's usually something that's bashing against the security of what we, what we claim to be at the heart of who we are. And, we, and that in itself is a conversation because then it, you really ought to be reflecting, so what is at the core of who you are and why does that seem so shakable where God says, I'm part of an unshakable plan in your life? And, and so there's a lot of room for, for dialogue. Going back to kind of what you're talking about, the children, do you think a lot of the security stems from things that happened in our childhood, or do you think these are things that can develop through our whole lives? Well, you know, my my best friend is a uh, pediatrician and a behavioral scientist, has a center for behavioral behavioral issues, family issues, and he'll tell you that um, 70% of our emotional connections are made before the age of three. So we understand a lot about, and, and even when we can't talk and when you don't think that you can remember things, the brain is wiring itself up. Now, by third grade is the ability to not only that emotional wiring, but comes the intellectual wiring. By, by age 12 is the relational wiring. So by age 12, you've got emotional, intellectual, and relational wiring that's already established. Well, think about the number of kids you've, you've known of or people you've known of that had just horrendous childhoods. Uh, my wife gives her testimony. She was molested in the second grade. She had a lot of other things that were unstable in her life, and it caused her to view the world in a very, a very particular way. And even to this day, there are things that you will, it will trigger in her that she talks about with her Bible study she does every week. And, 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 you know, it's not like she wakes up and says, you know, I really want to disappoint God. I really want to make the wrong choice or do something that's going to make someone mad. 
um, it, it's sort of like walking across a beam that part of it just isn't stable. It, it's just not been formed right. And so you have two choices. You either can let it collapse or you can help reform that beam with something that's stronger. And that's where I think faith comes in. Hmm. And so when the outside world is looking to other things, such as material wealth or anything like that, success, are they ultimately just looking for that stability that we're, cra- we're finding in faith? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You know, that, that was what happened to be the commodity that he was so invested in, the, that, that ruler. If it had been his love for hogs, I mean, I'm from Mississippi, so we use a lot of that uh, animal. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what is, it is. It could be ambition. It could be a relationship. It could be anything. Uh, an addiction, that is what's keeping you from being able to make the next step in terms of that relationship. And so I do think that we we end up self-medicating. Long before that was a phrase and anybody knew anything about it, we've all been self-medicating since the fall. And I think we see it, the thing is we see it in such, um, there's such terrifying ways that we see it happening these days. And I mean, and that's really where I think the church ought to step in. And since you talked a little bit about how, because of your life story, you're more adapt to change, whereas your wife is a little more yeah. hold back on it. Yeah. Do you think there's any benefit to change in that way, to being more open to change? Oh, I, I, I don't think you can go and experience new things, new places, new opportunities, unless you're willing to change. And so, yes, there's a pro, uh, definitely a, a positive to change. And the more you're able to work through that, because life is about change. There's really no part of life that stays the same ever. Um, what I think is, is the pace of change. And I think that's where you have to be careful because if, like me, if you're not afraid of change, what really is the issue is the pace of, of change. I have to be careful not to change too much too quickly. That's as pastor of a church, as a father, as a husband, as a friend. Um, and, 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 you know, you get someone like me who's not afraid of change. I'm willing to jump up every two years. Let's try something new. Um, that is not the way that someone who's gone through the trauma that my wife's gone through. She wants stability. She prefers to be in one home. We've been in Memphis 11 years. This is as long as we've ever been anywhere. She's very, very tied to that. And, um, and, and part of it is, is, is Lance, she wants a place for our children to be able to come home because she didn't have that because she was an army kid and they got moved around a lot. And so there's all kinds of factors there. For me, the, the one issue for change that I have is there's, and, and I, don't, I don't think I've ever talked about this, I do have a sense of fatalism sometimes in change. Um, as though we're standing on the last rock or this is the last run or this is the last, you know, battle. Uh, and that's because I've gotten to so many points in my life where um, we were told I wouldn't live here along or, or the medicines were going to run out or whatever it might be. And so I don't enjoy some of the relationships. I'm always in a fight. And that's not how God wants you to see change either. Do you think living on that edge has caused you to live life more fully because of that in some ways many ways yes i you know i don't um i don't have any problem with having fun um the problem with me i mean just to give you an idea physically when i was a little boy i was a hemophiliac i was not supposed to do certain things but i did them anyway 
And, uh, and so, especially after I found out that I was HIV positive, I just wanted to do as much as I possibly could do. But you know, there's all, you, you also play a part in another formula. And that other formula is, are, is with your community, your family, the people that love you. And there is a point where, again, stability means something in that relationship. I have three daughters. Uh, one of the things they tell me all the time is, boy, Dad, I'm just, I just I love knowing that we get to come home for Christmas. I get to come home to a place that, that has you. Now, whether we go to a cabin or whatever it might be, if I called and said, well, you know, your mom and I are going to go, you know, uh, sell around the world for Christmas, they would be horrified at that because they, they want that time to be able to bind back together. And that really is the life of the church. You know, we need that in, in church. We can't just be, be sent. We have to have a, a time where we arrive back. So you've made the pro case for stability, and you've exemplified why that matters. But can you talk about what's something toxic about that comfort and stability that you become too comfortable, perhaps? And, and don't change? Yes. Um, I think it works both ways. I think, again, like I just said, that people can change. The con is they change too quickly, too often, and therefore they don't establish stability. The opposite of that, the con is, is that if you get too comfortable, you never are able to go fully where God wants you to go and do what God needs you to do. I'm a firm believer that there's at least one expression of God's sending in everyone's life that is way beyond the horizon. But if you talk to people as they get to the end of their life, it's amazing to me how many people have regrets that they didn't do more. I never... I don't hear many people who have regrets about that they didn't do less. <laughs> Certainly not working. But what their regret is is that they didn't have a... It's about fulfillment. You know, a lot of times we can, we can burden ourselves with change and movement and, and new things just to keep ourselves busy. But are you fulfilled? And that can be both not doing enough and doing too much. I had a professor in college. Uh, it was a marketing class, and she instructed us, or she inspired us to say, like, try to do something different every day. She, her main point was to break stagnation. You know, sure. in marketing, it was in terms of being creative and finding things. But she was saying, you know, take a different way to class, take a different way to work every morning. So that's something I've taken is I try not to go the same way to work every morning, or at least I try not to cook the same thing more than once a month. There are things like, little things like that. Do you think there's a benefit to avoiding that stagnation, to finding the change in everyday life? Oh my goodness, you know, I. I, I with all of the things, with with all of my um, uh, acceptance of change, there were certain things I would not do. And so uh, I wrote this little book a few years ago about 12 positive principles in your life. And the last one is, you know, uh, ride more roller coasters and tell more fairy tales. And, you know, I think about the times in my life where my my children would beg me, come on, Dad, let's go on rock and roller coaster one more time. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, I'm about to throw up this thing. I've been on it nine times. And yet the look in their eyes says, you know, one more time's not going to hurt you. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the reason, you know, um, when you think about Grimm and others who came, who collected these these folk tales from all over the world, why do we tell ourselves fairy tales? It's not to escape, but it's to be able to. It's like metaphor. It's to be able to tell things in in ways that we couldn't tell it with just the normal way of language, and that's what I love. I love to be able to see experiences. To me, are are like metaphor. Um, you know, when we go we go to Europe. 
um, it's not just that we went to Europe and we got to see all these amazing things, but I got to see them with my kids. I got to experience, you know, be in places that 15 centuries ago something else happened with probably somebody else's ex- people that he cared about or she cared about or whatever it might be. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm building this bridge around the idea that doing things so often is the metaphor for how we are trying to express ourselves in ways that words just don't do. Let's get back to let's get back to scripture a little okay. bit. Right. You bet, you bet. <laughs> so when we talk about what does it mean for us to. A lot of times I hear people say like, "I wish God would just yell and answer at me. I wish He would speak more clearly in these situations." And a lot of times that involves some kind of change in situations. What do we look for? What do we have to find when we're in those situations and we're seeking God for a situation of change, but we can't hear Him? Yeah, it's interesting because I've I've been working on a paper that I've an article that I've been trying to do about just the philosophical nature of hearing God's voice. You know, most of us want God to speak in very direct tones, yes and no's, blacks and whites, those kinds of things, dualisms. And the the, the fact is, though, is remember, your you, God speaking to you is not just about you. It's about everybody in your life. It's about everybody that will come in contact with Lance and everybody that Lance will have some impact on and maybe in ways you will never know. God is the only one who understands the full nature of how nuance works. How say how you know you know it's not an answer in black and white that you get frustrated with, but it is an answer, and it's an answer that crosses generations and cross circumstances and, and can cross all kinds of of different opportunities, possibilities, and struggles. That's the that's why I trust God to be able to speak in ways that I don't understand. Uh, if I can understand it. And I'm the same way. I say, God, just give me an answer. And when I go back and look at my prayer journal, it never fails. I'll realize through this and this and this and this, he answered all of them. He did answer it. But he answered it in a way that only God can understand. If I, if I, if I can understand God, I don't need him, is kind of the way C.S. Lewis finished his conversation. So, um, I, you know, but I do think... That, but now, that being said... Um, a friend of mine the other day lost their father, and uh, very suddenly he wasn't wasn't an old man. He had not been unhealthy. He just had a massive heart attack, and he died. And um, and so she she was very upset, of course. And someone else who had lost their father in a similar way came to the funeral home, and I'll never forget the conversation. She said, you know, the, my friend said, I'm so angry at God. I'm mad because God took my father. I don't understand what he's doing. Why did he do this to me? And this other person said, I felt the exact same way. And he said, but then I realized, she, she said, but when I began to hear how my father had touched people's lives, and then when they found out that he had died, this person witnessed to this other person because they didn't want this person to die without Christ. And then this person changed the way that they parented and the way that they were in relationship with the, mo- the most important loved ones in their lives. And you know, so this person saying to my friend, I'm just standing there like a knot on a log. I have nothing to offer. And and this friend says, you know, I, I hate that I lost my father, but I will. it's not time that's wasted. I will see him again. What I do know is that, but I will also be able to stand there with these other people that my father's death impacted for them to witness. And I will not understand it now, but I will understand it. And she said in the by and by, and I'd never heard anyone in the modern world use the word, the phrase by and by, but I get it now. I get it because um, 
man, especially when you're in tra- when you're in, in in struggle and you're going through difficult, difficult moments, you really want answers. But it's you know God's you know God's not one plus one. God's God's calculate calculus. He's advanced math in terms of how His Word has an impact on so many things, and you just get to be one part of the formula. So for somebody who's stuck in that middle ground, they can't see out yet, they haven't been able to see the end game, what do they have to look forward to? What can they, what can they live in to get them through to the next day? You know, I tell people all the time, I am, I am not the, most, the deepest theologian, I'm not the smartest person, but I, do, I can offer you Jesus. And I think when you think about why God would need to send Jesus, we always think about it in, into the substitution—excuse me, that's terrible—substitutionary means of redemption, that He died on the cross for us. But He also lived for us, and He gave us examples of how to treat one another and be present, and to be present with the Father while He's also doing His work here on earth. And I think that I think for a lot of people, um, being able to find peace and being able to find presence— in the way that God is working with you. So the thing that I would say to them beyond anything else, no matter what God is doing or not doing in your life that you can clearly see or you're frustrated with, never forget He loves you. He, he For God so loved the world. And that is right there the platform that everything else goes off of. How do people accept that change as it comes to them? When they, when they get to the end, they may not like it. You know, like in your situation, your friend lost her father. Sure. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the change that God has presented you? I have only found one way in my years and the things that I counsel people. The only way that I know to do it is journal. It's the only way because the mind is always moving things in and out and and rearranging. I think that's why eventually the Word of God, and it's called the Word, the Logos, I think it's why it was written down. I think that's why the Word of God, the Logos, is written on our hearts. I think that's why, because there's a chance for us to go back and see the evidence of it, but not in terms of of fact, but in terms of just see how the story works itself out and we get to be a part in it. And so journals, I tell people journal, and and it doesn't matter if if you're writing sentences or bullet points, but journal what your day is like because eventually when you go 30 days in and you go back and look at that first day, you will see some way over those 30 days that God worked in your life that you did not understand and maybe didn't even notice it at the time you wrote it down. Um, I, I just, I'm a firm believer that journaling is one of the most sacred things that we get a chance to do. So when somebody is in a situation, say they have a deadline, they've received a job offer or there's some big change that's coming on a deadline and they can't just, they can't seem to hear from God. How do they respond? How do they handle that situation? Well, I, you know, I used to wonder if there was a formula, because I'm a formula guy, if there was a formula, and there is. Paul talks about it in the fourth chapter of Philippians. And he, get, you know, he talks about the peace that passes understanding. You know, but, you know, don't let your hearts be troubled, you know, by prayer and petition, thanksgiving, you know. But that's sort of triage. What he really wants you to do, instead of walk, instead of having the peace of God, he wants you to walk with the God of peace, which is what happens in verses eight and nine. He says, "So if you're ready, you know you've experienced the touch of the peace of God, but now let me show you what it means to walk with the the God of peace all the time." And he says, "Think on these things." And the first thing he does is think about what's true. Well, the most true thing I know in the world is the Word of God. So every every day, I, for every week, I pick a scripture a day. 
And so by the end of the day, I mean, and I just carry it with me, try to be very simple. And by the end of the day, I just try to memorize it. And I, and I never do it, by the way. I'm the worst memorizer of Scripture on the planet. But it's, it gets sunk into my heart. What is true, what is noble, the most noble thing that's ever been done for me is Jesus died on the cross. And so I'll just spend a few moments meditating on the image of Jesus on the cross for me and knowing that he did that just for me. What is lovely, what is admirable, just kind of go through that and think about how do you answer those questions? Well, what happens is it's like an algorithm. It's a formula for a solution of anxiety, of, 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 of being able to finally be able to take the voice and the noise away because that's what happens. I, I sleep so much better since I've been doing this. But it, what it else it does is it takes the noise away so that I can have more clarity as I look forward. And I tell people all the time, even if you don't practice the algorithm, you really need to stop. Yeah, I, I'm a, I even believe that plumb bobbing works. You know what scripture bobbing is, where you just open the Bible and say, God, speak to me. You know, God's not afraid of that. And so, and I've seen it work so many times. But there's so many resources out there now Number one, to be able to get into the Word. The second thing, though, is that I also believe that for every circumstance you're in, God's always angling someone there as a resource for you. And sometimes it may not be someone you've ever called on before. Uh, I do think that's why uh, scriptural community matters, why church community matters, is because you know a toe is not supposed to be laying off by its side. It's supposed to be connected to a foot that's connected to an ankle, to a leg, and so forth. And so I think that's why people, you can't be a Christian by yourself. And one of the things I do worry about, Lance, is that with technology and COVID, you know, we had to spend a lot of time by ourselves. And I'm seeing two things. I'm seeing apathy, but I'm also seeing a sense of distraction and kind of an anger that comes out of what's happened. And, um, and, a lot, and I think a lot of that has to do with just this disconnection from the body. And so I'm, I'm, I hope that, and technology is great, don't get me wrong. I know it works, and it, and it does help build people in community together. But there also has to be a point where you understand that that is not the God. It is the, maybe a vehicle to help experience God. But, um, you know, I would, I would answer it that way. I'm not sure I answered it. So. No, that's great. You know, we talked about stability earlier, and yeah. you're comfortable where you are. But then there's certain circumstances where it's maybe things need to change, but you don't want to change. How do you ask God to show you, should I change, should I stay, what should I do moving forward? Well, you know, God tells us that, um, you know, in so many different parts of the Bible that, you know, He will disrupt, He will disrupt um, our comfort level time and time again. And, and, you know, Jesus does it over and over again. Unfortunately, it's usually Peter that's the one that's getting disrupted. I've never been in a situation where God, where I could, where I can pretend all day that the storm's not raging, but clearly everyone else does. It kind of reminds me of Jonah and the and the boat and the storm. All the guys around him knew there was a storm raging. Someone in your life is going to point that out. So if you don't listen, that's called denial, and there's a and that's actually in the DSM five. They will tell you that is an actual disorder. Um, you, you know, we we convince ourselves of things instead of really listening to what God is trying to tell us. I don't think God tries to hide or play riddles or games with us about what His Word is in our life. What it is is, you know, it's like the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. What He means, blessed are those who are destitute that are so empty in themselves that God can fill up more space in them. And that they will inherit the kingdom of God. And so I, I tell people all the time, you know, oh, I've got this decision, I've got this thing I've got to do, I've got to make a, you know, 
make some change in my life and I'll say have you have you spent time just listening not talking not telling God what you need but simply listening well how do you listen well let's think about how the Bible said it use scripture used other people used dreams used examples of, of things that were beyond our normal scope I've had only three times in my life but very supernatural things happen one was in Mexico scared the dog out of me and but it, it was as real as it could be and so yeah. what was that experience well uh, I had uh, was preaching at a congregation that we're very close to and the pastor of the congregation's wife is just very very charismatic very spiritual I am the type that you know I grew up in a church if you raised your hand they thought you had a question I, that was not me um, and so she started praying over me, though, because I was going through liver treatments at the time and did not feel good. And I just finished preaching my sermon that night. And I was tired. And I could tell these two guys moved behind me. And I thought, oh, my goodness, she's fixing to do this Benny hand thing on me, you know, touch me on the forehead and I fall out. And I, my, my fear, Lance, was I'm going to embarrass her because I'm not going to go down. I, it just won't happen to me. And all of a sudden, she started praying that I was going to see my grandchildren, that I was going to walk my daughter down the aisle. I'd not, Sarah Grace had not gotten married at the time, that I was going to have great health, that I was going to be strong. And she just touched me on the forehead. And I, the next thing I remember, I wake up on the floor. They had caught me and laid me down on the floor. And I, and, and I have 30 Christchurch members that were in the congregation who saw it. And, you know, they tell you that, this is the other thing where I was going with this, God never speaks into your life, whether it's that profound or not, that he's not also echoing it to someone else to confirm it for you. And uh, our worship director's son was on the trip, and he looked over at his, when I went down, he looked over at his dad, and he went, I- I'm, I'm fixing to pass out. And he sat down, and his dad looked over at him and said, well, can you, you know, w- what's wrong? He said, he said, oh, I don't feel bad physically. He said, I, f- I feel like that I've gotten this huge revelation, and I, I need to go talk to Pastor Shane about it. And I, I mean, I, I, people sometimes don't believe me when I tell this story. It is as real as the table that we're, stand, that we're sitting under. And it really profoundly affected the way that I trusted the, the Word of God. I have, I've not had any trouble since going, okay, I don't understand it. I don't know what you're doing, but... You know, I'll follow you because you obviously have a broader picture than I do. Talking about that, there's always a second person to echo what God's saying. Yeah. How do you remain open to being that vessel for someone? Oh, that's a that's an awesome question. Um, in, in Scripture, I don't know of a person that did not have some hesitance about being the second. You know, to be the echo, um, but. God did not choose vainly. So God's not going to choose someone to act in that role that's not also prepared to receive it. They may not receive it at first, or it may have some discomfort. What I would say to people is just, you know, there's a uh, be available to be a, to be an offering. Um, you know, say get, I get up every morning and say, okay, God, do with me as you will, you know, that I might bring glory to you. And... That's really all that matters. And I know God uses my ministry in certain ways, and in certain ways others' ministries touch me. But the other thing is is that God doesn't need your permission. So I've had a lot of people who'll say, you know, well, you know, why isn't God using me? Well, it's not because he couldn't make you 
he couldn't use you. It's because he wants you to also understand the power of what's happening. And so a lot of times when people aren't used in those ways, it's because we've created some block or some, some inhibiting factor in our life. It, it, the same as the person that he's trying to get to be obedient or to move in a certain direction. So I would say it's the same principles. Uh, my friend says, read, pray, uh, love Jesus. You know, and, I, and that's the way that he kind of views the world. Read your Bible, pray, love Jesus. So to go to the other end of the spectrum, where where is the line between oversharing or sharing out of place and being that that person that's open to speaking what God has laid upon you? It's a relationship. You know that's why relationships are so important and so critical in the body of Christ. Is um, there are people that your relationships just not it's just not grown enough in order to share certain things. But God's not going to put you in a position that a person that what he what a person needs to he what a person needs to hear they can't hear. Um, even people who fight it and who say they don't want to hear it or can't hear it, they hear it. That's why it's made them so mad. That's why it's gotten them frustrated or whatever it might be. Um, I, I think. You know, I tell people that the Spirit of God is always whispering to me. And so I'll know if I go down a particular road if what I'm about to say is more shame than God. I just get a feeling about it. Now, that's not the way it always used to be. And so I I hope in in getting older and more mature that I've become more aware (laughs) of what is and what is not. Um, but But And there is something to maturity in that. You know, when I was 35, you know, and I'm not saying this for everybody who's 35, I was a particularly just big idiot as a 35, thinking I knew everything. And I just, I just, I didn't know anything, you know. I knew, but I knew Jesus. And eventually that became enough for me to be able to do what I needed to do, um, listening to listening to Him. That's it's an interesting segue. I've been thinking about often for since I became a Christian, I've struggled with the idea that God gave me a brain. He gave me intelligence. He's given me life situations. He's molded me into the person I am today that I think the way that I do. Sure. Yet it also says in the Bible to lean not on your own understanding. Understanding, yeah. What is the middle ground there? What is when you're in that situation? The deadline's approaching. You got a brain. You can make it a logical decision. They're going to pay me four times what I'm getting paid now. <laughs> sure, but sure. does God want me move into Canada? You yeah. Know, what's the middle ground? Well, um, a guy by the name of Albert Outler uh, really researched. John Wesley struggled with that very question his whole ministry. And Outler discovered that Wesley actually created a formula for how he would view what God was working in his life. And the way Wesley, the way Wesley approached it, he says, lean not on your own understanding first is the way God meant it. Um, and I can see that because, you know, first in the quadrilateral is what they call it, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. First, you listen to scripture. Uh, then you listen to tradition. What's happening, not just the church tradition, but what do you see in other people's lives that serve as examples for how you face the world? Um, and because everybody's a student, everybody's a teacher at some point in their life. And then reason, God did give you a brain. He, what he doesn't want you to do is he doesn't want to make you, he doesn't want you to make your intellect your God because it's not enough. And then experience. What have you experienced in this situation that, that continues to teach you and helps you to, to, to make better decisions? So I do, I, I actually, I use the quadrilateral all the time. I'll, I may even graph it out and say, okay, I'm going to make an X here and see how this works. 
So oftentimes you talked earlier about how God disrupts your life and he can disrupt your plans and things like that. So how do oftentimes when we get some big God moment like that where he instructs us to do something, it's not comfortable. It's yeah. rarely ever comfortable. Yeah. How do we reconcile with that? <laughs> um, I, sometimes you don't reconcile. Sometimes sometimes I've done a lot of things where I'm just not at a place of comfort. That will eventually come. But I also know that you know, when you're in the lion's den, there's certain things that are important and certain things that are not. Surviving the lions becomes more and most important. And particularly if God's the one who shuts their mouth, that the witnessing to that is more important than any other thing that you can... My family always tells me, shh, it's not about you. I love that. And, uh, and, and so a lot of part of life is helping us realize when it is about us and when it's really not about us. The, the reconcile part comes to play, I have found comes to play, not so between myself and God, but between myself and others. It, it affects the way I do relationships. It affects the way people see me. It affects the way I move forward. And so, you know, God can move you from A to B to C. What God would really like you to do, though, is see what he's doing as he moves you from A to B to C. Share that, live that, offer that as an example. Because there's a, there is a difference between um, there is a difference between action and attitude normally, and and you can line those two up, and boy, it's a beautiful picture. But I, I don't know about you, but I've done a lot of things that I did it, but just didn't have the right attitude for it, and that's that's the sad part of all of it is that I, I wasted that situation because I was more worried about how I was feeling than by what God was doing. Can you go in on that a little bit more? I like the thought of it's your attitude towards Christ in that situation. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's it hard not hard. to be angry at him sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's been difficult in, you know, different life stages. So how do you, how do you not be angry at God? Well, the way that the, the, the best, here's what would happen is whenever I would get really angry with God, it was always because my point of reference was my own happiness. Um, that's not what Paul says in Philippians 2 when he's trying to work on the Philippians. He says, you know, don't listen to me, but let your attitudes be as that of Christ Jesus. And when I think about what Christ actually did, that's why I think we had three years of his ministry before the cross. He could have come, died, raised from the dead, whoo, cosmic situation taken care of. But he lived three years in every kind of situation we can imagine. He was born of a you know, of a woman. I mean, he, he, he lived a human life. Why did, why did he have to do that? Well, I think it's because he could show us how, how God has interceded into every corner of life. He is, he doesn't, he, he's not unaware of your sadness or your ambition or your temptation or whatever it might be. And, and so, you know, really obedience I, I, I say this to my daughters all the time. You know, the hardest obedience is obedience to our own self-understanding. Um, when you realize that you're not who you thought you were or God's calling you to a place that you would have never gone on your own. And, that's not, and that, is a, that is a real self-revelation instead of just going from one point to the next when you realize that I'm not just going from one point to the next, but I'm actually a whole different person than I thought I was in the journey. And, um, and, God, can, and God can always expand 
God's always expanding you and wanting to fill you up with his presence. He wants you to experience what creation was supposed to be about. But I do think, I said this yesterday in the sermon, I think there's so much shame. I think, you know, Bonhoeffer describes joy as the absence of shame. Because, you know, it's not about being happy or getting what you want or feeling comfortable or at peace. It's just the absence of shame. And if you think about how much Satan uses shame to kind of derail us and and shape us, um, I mean, it really is overwhelming when I think about it, how much God, I mean, Satan uses shame and guilt on me. Would you think that shame is the the greatest adversary to being obedient? Absolutely. Yeah, I... Someone else pushing back on me, I usually fight through and da da da. When I'm pushing back on me, oh man, it's so much harder. So much harder. Well, Shane, I appreciate your time. Thank you for sitting down to talk with us today. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.